0: Well, hey, how are you guys? Good. Good. There we go. I like it when I get that kind of reception from one person, Michael, my XP. Okay. <laughs> Glad you guys are all here. My name's Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Especially if you're new, I want to say a special welcome to you. Or if you're visiting from out of town some of the people that we have here, I'm very excited to see you guys, so I'm glad that you're with us today. Hey, like Matt said, it's one week until Christmas, basically. Our Christmas service is on Thursday, which is really awesome. But are you guys ready for Christmas yet? I mean, it's one week away. Are you guys ready for it? I mean, do you have you bought all your stuff? I mean, I'm just giving you a warning in case you forgot, like... The only reason I can ask you with this smug look on my face is because I've got all my presents, okay? So I feel really good. My last one's coming in the mail tomorrow, supposedly. So hopefully that's your friendly reminder. If you haven't finished shopping for your loved ones, you better do it, all right? Uh, But this Thursday is that Christmas service for us at 6.30 right here in this room. Doors open at 6. So I hope you're inviting people to come and you'll be here early so that you can go to the hot cocoa bar, hang out, get to know people, have your friends that you bring with you get to know other people, get them around God's people, because it's going to be a really fun, impactful night. And our kids are going to start by singing on the stage with our choir. So if you're a parent and you haven't been reading the emails from Caitlin, our kids coordinator, you might want to make sure you do that, okay? Just so that you are aware of what's going on that night, because it's going to be really fun. They're having a PJ's party downstairs. They're going to have a blast, and they're going to sing a couple of songs up on stage with us, and then they're going to be dismissed to go to their worship time while we have ours up here, and I preach a Christmas sermon about hope is coming. It's going to be really fun, all right? So I hope that you guys are preparing for that and inviting people to it. I'm almost done inviting my 10 people that I told you I have as a goal. I hope that you're inviting people because they're worth it, But God's worthy of it, right? And we want to have worshipers all over Roanoke here on Thursday night. So I hope you guys are doing that. One more quick note, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. This is our last Sunday meeting of the year, okay? So we're meeting on Thursday this week, not on Sunday, on on the 24th. So we're not meeting on the 24th. We're meeting on the 21st instead. And then we always take the last Sunday of the year off so that we can rest, rejuvenate, spend time with our friends and family, and get ready for the coming year. So we won't meet until January 7th. Does everybody hear that? Say January 7th. 7th. Okay, that's the next time that we'll meet on a Sunday, all right? So that's that's when we'll be here. It's going to be really fun because we'll have a vision series beginning that day. We'll lay out the vision for the coming year. It's going to be really impactful and fun, especially since we have a new building on the way. Anybody else? All right, it's going to be really cool. We'll talk more about that during the vision series as well. But today... Finally, uh, we're ending our series called Deep Dependent Worship. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 58. If you want to turn there or find it on your device, we'll have it on the screens for you as well. And throughout this series, we've seen that everything that we do, everything is worship. Let me just do a real quick recap. Everything we think, do, say, it's all worshiping something because we all worship something. We can't turn worship off in us. We will worship something. And so, as Christians, the whole idea for us is that we want to worship God above all else. So, we've talked about singing as an expression of our worship in this series, we've talked about work and rest as expressions of our worship. Last week we talked about faith and how giving is an expression of our worship and it fosters this deep dependence on God alone because we're giving things away knowing that He's the great provider for us. We talked about preparing the jars last week, if you'll recall, if you were here, which is presuming on God's faithfulness to do in and through us what He's already promised He will do in and through us, namely to call others into His kingdom. And so we talked about that last week as well. Giving is a huge part of that. Giving of ourselves, because God has given to us, we give in response, and that giving is often what leads others into the kingdom. That's why we have our Multiply offering every year, every December, for us as a church, because we know that our giving fuels the mission. We say that all the time here, and we really believe that, and so... Our Multiply offering will be ending at the end of December. I hope that you guys uh, really appreciated the commitment Sunday we had last week. I thought it was really meaningful and impactful. I'm excited to see what God's going to do through that offering this year. Uh, But now this week we finish our discussion on deep dependent worship here. And I thought it would be really important for us to discuss what our future hope that we have looks like as worshipers. Because what's worship moving us toward ultimately well, it's moving us toward eternity with God forever. And so our worship now is really shaped by the future hope that we have in heaven with God forever. So if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Here's our main point for today. Our worship now is shaped by our hope for the future. So we, you know, we're going to be having this eternal perspective as we get into 2024. And we're going to start thinking about what that looks like for us as Christians. And I thought it would be really helpful to end our series now and start Thinking about it like this, our worship now is moving us toward worship for eternity. You know, if everything that we do in our life is worship, then of course, that what we do now is shaped by what we believe for the future. Just, just imagine it this way. Think of two people who are working the exact same job, okay? Now, if they're working this job and they don't get paid for the job and the, and the work that they're doing until after the project is complete, imagine one person is working for $15,000. They'll get $15,000 at the end of this project. Imagine the second person, though, is working for $15 million. They'll get $15 million at the end of the project. They're both doing the exact same job. They're both working toward the same thing, but for different ends. Does that make sense? So imagine how their knowledge of what they're making at the end of that project is gonna impact how they do the work now. You think the $15 million person might have a little bit more of an incentive to get the project done right and to get it done quickly than the $15,000 person, right? What they're expecting for the future will impact how they do things now, and that's the same thing for us. What we believe about the future affects everything that we're doing now. It's certainly that way with our worship. Christians have a hope that this life that we're in right now is not the end for us. There is something better that's coming. And so Christmas is even a season where we dwell on this a little bit. Jesus came into the world. Hope has come, but we also believe hope is coming again. We believe there's a first advent. We believe that there's a second advent coming. So Christmas gives us that anticipation. The same anticipation that they had when Jesus was born into the world. Now we have that same anticipation again, but he's coming back, not as a baby, but as a king. It's going to be a beautiful thing, and we're anticipating that. And I don't want to be a downer today as I kind of go into this next topic here, and I don't want to get too intense at the very beginning, although you just can't really help it when you bring things like this up. But it does mean when we think about eternity, that we also have to think about and wrestle with death, right? Because eternity leads us to that thought of death. Because death is the thing that ends this life now. It's just a part of the discussion. So maybe you're here today, and maybe you're afraid of death. You know, I I know that's a major question for most of us at some point in our lives. Like, what's going to happen to me when I die? What happens to my loved ones when they die? Maybe you've recently even lost a loved one, and you had to face their death it's just not an easy thing to talk about or think about or discuss, but it's there. It's, it, you have to de- deal with it. It's right there in front of you. At the same time, I think it's one of the most basic parts of life that every one of us will have to deal with at some point, to consider and spend time on something that we know is coming at the end of our lives. It's usually one of the biggest fears that people have. It's also usually the biggest problem that many people face when considering whether or not to believe and trust in God, Right? This is one of those things that people cite. How could a good God allow death and decay and destruction in his supposedly good world? It's usually how the question will go. And and what ends up happening, when we have all these questions, we don't know about death. We we have these fears and we have these anxieties and we have these questions. And that means usually we try to deal with death on our own. We'll try to come up with answers for it. So I, I thought of three ways that we typically try to deal with death on our own. Some of us might just try to ignore it. That's usually the way of the American dream, right? We just ignore it because we can. We, we focus on our American dream lifestyle. We don't have to think about death. We don't want to deal with it. We might just pretend like it's not even there. We don't want to think about it when a loved one dies. We just kind of shut down. We move on, and it's not in a healthy way because we just want to ignore the fact that one day we will die. Or some people might try to come to terms with death and think of death as a good thing even. They might try to rationalize it or naturalize it. Oh, it's just part of life, right? Hey, everybody's going to die, and when you die... There's nothing to it. It's, it's just like this dreamless sleep, or it's like a forever rest. It's like an old friend, you know. Maybe you even take the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus's view on this, where it's irrational to have a fear of death. Although the problem is, most of us do have a, a fear of death. So it's very interesting that we try to rationalize something like that. It's almost like we make light of death in this case. You know, and the Bible's response is that to be afraid of death is the most rational thing. It's actually irrational if you're not afraid of death because death shouldn't be the end. Death is a scary thing for all of us. You know, it's just an emotional fact. We all experience that fear at some point in our lives. It's because the Christian worldview, we know that we're meant to continue living on. It's innate in all of us. There's something in each of us that looks at death and says, that's just not okay. It shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't have to go through this. So trying to just be okay with death and make light of it doesn't seem to work. But then the third thing that I think that we do is we try to defy death, you know, uh, some people might do this. I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen some of these folks trying to reverse age themselves. I, don't know, I probably shouldn't laugh because it's probably not that funny, but it kind of is. Okay. If you've ever seen uh, this guy named Brian Johnson right now, I just read an article about him a few months ago. He's apparently this multimillionaire tech entrepreneur, and he's trying to reduce his biological age every year to defy death. So he's 45, said he has the skin of a 22-year-old. Okay, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I don't know what he did to get there, but he's on this like regimen of you know all kinds of workouts that he has to do every, every day, certain exercises and routines, vitamins and supplements. He's got 30 scientists working with him on a team to try to de-age him. So I don't, I don't know how that'll impact his death date. I don't know. Okay, well, time will tell. It's an experiment, right? But it definitely sounds just like something a 45-year-old millionaire in a midlife crisis might do. I mean, maybe if I was a multimillionaire, that's what I'd do too. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, probably not. But that's, I'm like, this guy is obviously in a midlife crisis trying to defy defy death. I think it's really absurd. But see, we, we try to deal with death in all these different ways because we don't know what to do with it. It's scary. And as much as we try to rationalize it or ignore it or defy it, it's there. And we're confronted with it at certain times in our life, and we just have to deal with it. Or we don't, and we do it in one of these ways. But see, Christians have a hope for the future that deals with death in maybe more of a realistic way than any of these other approaches. Because we don't have to ignore it. We don't have to make light of it, try to act like it's not a big deal. We don't have to try to defy it. We can have hope in the face of it. Why? One simple truth. Jesus' resurrection. That's what we believe about the future. Because if Jesus' resurrection is true then our resurrection will be true in the future. If we put our faith in Jesus, while we may die to this life, we'll be raised to a new one forever. That's the Christian hope that we have, and that's the future hope that shapes how we live and how we worship now. It means we can confront even the scariest things in life, like suffering, like waiting, like disappointment and depression and anxiety, even death. Because we have this hope that doesn't just have to come to terms or ignore or defy. We have a hope that swallowed up death. We have a hope that defeats death and secures our eternity forever with God. So our worship now is shaped by our hope for the future. That's the Christian lifestyle. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 today to see how we get there as believers. We're going to jump around a bit, and I just want to warn you before we get into it, okay? I'm going to be reading a lot of text. I don't normally do that. Uh, We're going to be jumping around through 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 45, just as a launch point. But the reason I want to do this is because the Bible talks so much about this future hope, and I could probably quote so many more places in the Bible And I'm just sticking to a few just so that we don't get too confused today. We're going to start right here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said in verse 45, The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Man, that's good news already. It's very hopeful. Paul's thesis here is that Jesus is the bridge between earthly and heavenly realities that make up our universe and our personal experience. So as much as I give psychology a hard time, Mostly because my wife majored in psychology, and so I always said it was the most useless major that's ever out there in the history of the university. But if you're a psych major, I'm sorry, I'm just joking. Okay, I'm just joking. Don't get upset. It's a joke, because psychology helps us out a lot here, all right? Because the mind-body connection that we see, you know, it still baffles psychologists today. It baffles scientists. We don't know how it works, because there's this part of us that's physical for sure, yes. But there's also this part of us that we can't explain that's not physical, and, you know, just firing neurons and synapses don't, don't really get at what that actually means for us because our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings and our, our will, all of these things are this metaphysical part of us. Some call it the mind. Some call it the spirit or the soul. But it's this part of us that's above reality, the physical reality that we're in, the metaphysical. It's who we are and how we operate every single day is in both of these realms, physical and metaphysical, metaphysical. And so in Western thought, though, at least in Greek and Roman philosophy in the past, the physical part of the human was bad. I don't know if you remember this from like Plato, Socrates, some of these guys. The form is better than the immaterial. Or excuse me, the immaterial is better than the material. So the form is that immaterial spiritual thing that's better than the material, than the physical. It's all about the archetype, if you remember Plato. You know, the material man is bad, the the immaterial or spiritual man is good. That's Western philosophy, something bad about the physical nature. But then in Easter thought, it's very similar because the material part of who we are is this kind of grand illusion, as in it's not the ultimate thing that we're driving toward. We're driving toward this higher reality, this end goal of physical life, this transcendence. You think nirvana in Buddhism, for example trying to transcend and be one with the universe. It's this metaphysical form that we're trying to go toward. That's Eastern thought in in a nutshell, and I'm oversimplifying these a little bit, but you can kind of remember this from maybe your high school philosophy class. And Paul is saying that Christians believe Jesus is the bridge between the material and the spiritual, and that both are a really important part of what it means to be a human, both now and into eternity. It's different than other worldviews on this. You can't separate the two out. They're both God-given and they're both good. And if we follow Jesus and trust in him, not only will we live an earthly life now, but we'll be resurrected into this new life in the future, in bodily form, not immaterial, not disembodied, but embodied. Eternity is this perfect merging of the physical and the spiritual. But he goes on, verse 50. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies... If I can put in parentheses now, if our physical bodies now cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's talking about our current bodies in this current state. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. We cannot, in present form, enter into eternal life, is what he's saying. So the Western and Eastern philosophers might be half right if we could say it like that. There's something about how we are right now that's just not good. It's not okay. It's broken, it's not perfect. But there's something even better that we're heading toward. Paul says, verse 51, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. Now, we can take this a few different ways, but the majority view on what he's saying here is that some believers won't die before Jesus returns. So Jesus will come back one day, and there will be people on this earth. But regardless, all will be transformed. Whether we died and Jesus comes back and he raises us to life, or whether people are still on the earth and they're alive when he comes back, everyone will be transformed into this eternal state. Spiritual bodies, he says here. Not not formless, not ephemeral, not spiritual in the sense that it's immaterial, but this heavenly body, this eternal body, when Jesus comes back to usher in his kingdom in space and time on this earth. Listen to the rest of what he says here, verse 52. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye. When the last trumpet is blown. You know, this this trumpet being blown is symbolic of Jesus' return as king. We see this all throughout the Bible, throughout prophetic writings. And he says, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. You know, we didn't read it yet. But I want to go back to verse 36 because Paul deals with this and gives an illustration of it. He says in verse 36 in the same chapter, he said, When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. and It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever, raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. Man, this is getting exciting, right? Like this is what it's, he's talking about what it's going to look like for us, what it's going to be like. Paul's saying that these decaying bodies that we have now will die. And they kind of need to. So that they can give rise to a new body, a new spiritual eternal body that will be better in every way. Like a seed that goes in the ground and dies, it'll grow into something much greater, much more grand than when it was planted. What he's also saying is that these these are real bodies. Again, this is not a, an immaterial type of thing. He's saying that these will be real bodies in real time, in real space, living in a real and perfect relationship with God and each other forever. And it's, it's reality, not just wishful thinking, in other words. He's not just saying, oh, we hope that it's going to be this way. Oh, man, it's going to be great like, if it were this way. He's saying it will be like this. It's not wishful thinking in that sense. Our bodies now decay and die, but our bodies then never will. No, I, I know there's a lot of misconceptions about this kind of thing, and I wish we could go deep into this. We could talk for, you know, four or five hours on all of the different things in the Bible that talk about this kind of thing. There's misconceptions that it is this kind of immaterial disembodied state that we're like going to be a, like an angel somewhere on a cloud with a harp, right? You know, but that's not what the Christian hope is. He's saying the Christian hope is that when we die here, we'll be raised there in eternity forever in a real body, on a real earth. That's that's not the same thing that you hear in like you know the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Okay, as funny as those are, this is a real thing. That's the Christian hope is that we will live on a remade, renewed earth in remade, renewed bodies, and we'll never die again. And that's good news. Verse fifty four, he goes on to say, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable, always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. It's interesting. This is the Christian hope of eternity that we have. We, we deal with death differently because Jesus gives us victory over it, which means that we look at life differently in light of that. So our worship now is shaped by our hope for the future. Nothing is ever useless, he says. What we do now is not useless. It's shaped by the hope that we have for the future. We don't have to come to terms with death in the sense that we have to make it like it's something that's okay. We don't have to make light of it. We don't have to ignore it. We don't have to try to defy it. Instead, we can face it head on because we know it's been dealt with on our behalf by Jesus himself. Jesus gives us victory over it because he's taken that sting onto himself. This is what sin does. Okay, You can write this down. Sin, that has, sin is the thing that has brought death and decay into this world. That's the sting that Paul is talking about here. Paul says it's the sting that results in death. What's he mean by that? Well, it's not just a sting in the sense that it's the thing that hurts us. It's it's not like just a bee sting or a prick on the the skin. Not not like that. The Greek word actually denotes some kind of poison or venom. So it's a sting with venom. It's like a viper's sting. So, So the sting is that sin that gets in us, and it's the thing that decays us from the inside out and destroys us and ends up leading to death. See, our knowledge of the way God says things ought to be through his law, that gives sin its power over us. Why? Well, because we know what we ought to do and we don't do it. So we're held responsible for knowing what God tells us we ought to do and we don't do it in our lives. Once we know what God wants, we have to be responsible for our actions, especially when we say, no, I don't want it that way, God. I just, I'm going to reject what you have designed for my life. I'm going to reject what you say is good. I'm going to reject the way that leads to life, basically. And I say this a lot here at our church, but when we reject that way that God has given us that leads to life, ultimately leading to him in a relationship with him, the author of life, then that naturally results in death. If we reject that, if God is our source of life, and his law is the thing that he's written out to tell us how to live in light of that life, when we reject it, it naturally leads to death. And so it always boils down to us thinking that we can deal with death on our own. You know, we we look at death, we look at it as a reality and we say, you know what, I'm going to ignore that. Or you know what, it's okay, I'm going to make friends with it. Or you know what, I'm going to defy this, I'm going to try to live forever in my own way. And every time that we do that, we give sin more and more power in our lives because we're just rejecting the God that provides life. God has told us he's dealt with death on our behalf. And every time we try to deal with death on our own, we're rejecting the God of life. By doing these things, we give sin more and more power in our lives. And we reject the God that gives life life in our lives. We pursue and worship idols in our life. We worship other things because we think that they'll deal with death better for us than God. We think that they'll satisfy our needs and our desires. It's really showing us more and more that we have a greater and greater longing for God himself the author of like the one who can give us, like the one who has dealt with death on our behalf. Randy Alcorn, in his book called Heaven, which I would highly recommend on this subject if you haven't read it, he said, he said this, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, is drugs, alcohol, is a new job, is a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, or a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. But what we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. That's God's presence forever, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. See, that's the problem in our lives. We're we're constantly trying to worship these other things that we think will deal with our fear of death more. And it just won't. We have this innate desire to be in the presence of the one that we're made for, Jesus, in his presence for eternity in heaven. All of human history has been a story of God dealing with death for us so that he can get us there, so that he can bring us back into eternity with him. See, when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, so did death and eternal separation from God. The first humans rejected God. That's what, he's ta- that's what Paul was talking about with Adam. You know, when we're in Adam, we're dying. So the first humans rejected God, and now it's, so do we, because we are in Adam. We are of that kind of lineage of sin and separation. We constantly rebel and reject God. And that caused the curse that we experience over this creation that we're in. This is why nature is dangerous and it's always against us. It's why we might hate our neighbors or they hate us. It's why we see sickness and pain and death in the world today. But see, God started even at the very beginning, reversing that curse, working to undo the brokenness that we had caused He's been working in time and in space for all of human history to undo the death that we deserve for our rebellion. And he dealt with death and gave it its final blow when he sent Jesus into the world 2,000 so years ago on Christmas Day. That's one reason why we celebrate Christmas is to remember what God has done for us on our behalf. But it's also the thing that gives us our future hope because Jesus has once and for all taken the sting of death for us. You can write this down. Jesus took the sting of death so that we could live forever. He took it on our behalf. That's the future hope that we have now. And it's the culmination of the gospel message that we believe as Christians. Jesus lived the perfect life that we can never live. That's the whole point. You know, if you're stuck in religion today and you think that you just got to be a better person and being a Christian makes you a better person, you're wrong, friend. That's not Christianity. That's something else. What What the Bible teaches us and what the gospel tells us is that we can never do anything good enough. Jesus had to do it on our behalf. He lived the perfect life for us, and then he took the death on himself that we deserve for rejecting God. We all feel that deeply, that we're not perfect, that we're missing something, that we're broken. Jesus took that away from us. He took that sting of death onto himself, and finally he defeated death when he rose from the dead by his own power, the power of His own Holy Spirit rose Him from the dead and when we believe in Him that same power that rose Him from the dead resides in us now in a mysterious way that we don't fully understand but we can experience every day of our lives now until the day that we die physically. See, when we trust in the resurrection power we can be raised from the dead one day in the future when Jesus returns, when that trumpet sounds and yeah, we know that we're going to die now We can stare it straight in the face and say, you don't have any victory over me because Jesus won the victory on my behalf. Is that truly a cause to worship or what? Doesn't that change how we live now? It's like the story of two brothers playing out in the yard. I heard this as I was listening and doing some research this week, and I thought it was really helpful as an illustration for this. These two brothers are playing out in the yard, and they see a bee flying around. Of course, you know, kids are afraid of bees, but the younger brother is deathly allergic to them. He can't be stung by a bee or he'll die. His throat will close up and he won't be able to breathe within a matter of seconds. And the older brother knows this. So as they're playing and he sees this bee swarming around his younger brother, he steps in, he pushes his younger brother out of the way and he steps in and he's stung on behalf of his younger brother. And and that bee comes off of his brother, the, the older brother's hand and it starts buzzing around the younger brother again but they both chuckle a little bit because now they know that that bee has lost its stinger, right? It's lost its sting. It might still have a little bit of life left in it for a little while, but it's going to go off and die somewhere. Why? Because the stinger has been dealt with in the older brother. The stinger is done. It is no more, and so the bee will die eventually, and it can't harm or sting anyone else, and that's Not a perfect analogy, but it's like what Jesus has done for us in some sense. He is the older brother that holds up his hand to us and says, I've dealt with death on your behalf. I was stung for you, and now you don't have to ever be stung again. Still earlier in chapter 15, Paul wrote, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. He took the sting, just as the Scriptures said. Referencing Old Testament prophecies when he says that. He was buried, but he was also raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. See, the inevitable question coming out of this, though, for me is, why doesn't Jesus take away death now? If he's taking the sting of death, why is he still allowing the bee to circle around your head a little bit? Why doesn't Jesus take death? Maybe you might even meet an Orthodox Jew one day who gives this as a reason for why they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. If you ask an Orthodox Jew, hey, why don't you believe Jesus is the Messiah? They might say something like, well, because everybody's dying still, right? There's still death in the world. The Messiah is supposed to come and take away death. So so why, why hasn't Jesus done that yet? What is Paul talking about here? Why do we have a hope deferred in other words? Well, I think there's two good answers to this. Both are connected. The first thing that we could say on this is that Paul's point about the seed going into the ground is very important for us. Because we're going to be reborn as something even greater out of this life. So there's something in this life that gets at preparation for eternity that God has designed into how things work. So, so in this life, we are preparing for that eternal next life that God has for us. And there's something about that suffering and that pain and that frustration that we have to experience now that gives us preparation for then. You know, Hebrews 2.10 tells us that even Jesus was made perfect in his suffering for us. So if he was made perfect in his suffering, that means that's probably part of the plan for us. There's something about suffering. As much as we hate death, as much as we hate the sting, as much as it scares us, there's something about this life and the suffering that we experience now that prepares us for the eternity to come. And the second thing that we could do, is, and I reference this all the time from 2 Peter 3.9, is that God wishes that none should perish. And so the second reason for why God allows this life to go on now is because he's giving everyone time to respond to his good news and not force them to believe. You know, that's the whole thing. I know that it always goes back to the free will argument. And if you're a skeptic here and this is interesting to you, we can talk more out in the hall afterward. Sorry. We can talk more out in the hall afterward. But I just want you to understand that God doesn't force us to do anything And as a Christian, as a believer here, you need to remember that you are responsible for your own choices and actions. God's God's given you that responsibility. We can't just ask God to do everything for us and expect to sit back and do nothing after we believe. So God wants us to love him of our own choice. He doesn't make us do that. He wishes that none should perish, and he gives them time in this life now to believe in him and to trust him. So that's why when you ask, hey, why do we have to believe at all? Why can't Jesus' sacrifice just apply to us? Because he's so good, right? He's so loving. Why doesn't he just apply it to everyone? Well, it's because he doesn't want to force any of us to believe. That's not true love. God wants a loving relationship with us. And he's created and designed reality in such a way that he believes that in this life now, we are preparing for the life to come. And that's including growing in our love for Jesus. So I don't know if that's satisfying to you, but I think those are the answers, or at least two of the big ones. And so I want to ask you before moving on, do you want that kind of love for Jesus? Do you want it in your life? Maybe you can ask it this way if you're you're writing down notes. You could say this, do you trust in Jesus' resurrection? Let's just ask it from that point of view. Do you trust in what he's done for you? Is that the source of your hope? Because if it's not, it it will shape how you worship from now on for sure. Because you're going to worship something, but it won't be God. You'll worship yourself. You'll worship something like your time or your talent or your treasure. You'll worship a person, someone else in your life. And this life will be as close to heaven as you'll ever come. But if you trust in Jesus and you believe in his resurrection not only will it shape your worship now, but man, it's going to give you a foretaste of the worship to come for all eternity because this present life and the suffering that you face now will be as close to hell as you'll ever come. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe if you're still iffy on believing in Jesus, if you're a skeptic here today, my encouragement to you is to just look at the resurrection and deal with that. Did it really happen? Because I believe that there's plenty of evidence that says that it did. Paul actually deals with this in the chapter earlier on. I'll read this from chapter fifteen, verse fourteen, he's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, "If Christ has not been raised, then all who are preaching, all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins." In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And he talks about how 500 people saw Jesus. He talks about how the the, uh, apostles touched his side and his hands and saw him and experienced him. He says there's ample evidence for the resurrection. I agree. Maybe that's something you need to check out because he goes on to say, "See, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun, has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ has, was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. That's, that's, how, that's how it works, and he's telling people that he believes there's evidence for the resurrection. So we have a hope of eternal life because Jesus' resurrection is like a receipt of payment for us. We believe in the resurrection. It's vital. It's the, it's the most crucial part of our belief system because we believe that it gives us reassurance that God will save us on that last day. You think about what a receipt is. You go to Sam's Club, and you have to show them your receipt when you walk out with all the things to make sure that you paid To make sure that whatever you have in your cart, you paid for, right? Well, the resurrection is that receipt for our eternity that Jesus paid for our sins so that we could live with God forever. It proves Jesus paid for our lives so that we can raise with him on the last day. And if you're still not sure that you can put your faith in him, man, I'd love to talk to you after the service more. I want to commend to you one resource. It's called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Who Moved to the Stone by Frank Morrison? It really helped me as I worked through this to try to objectively look at the evidence surrounding the last seven days of Jesus' life leading up to the resurrection. Can it be trusted? Is it trustworthy? I don't have time to go to a full defense today. I wish I did. I'm running out of time here. But what I want to focus on now is for believers in the room. Now, if you do believe in Jesus and this is your hope that you say, then I want to finish out our time together helping you feel that. You know, sometimes we have application points that are action-oriented, and I tell you, you need to go do something after this. We're going to have a time to respond like we do every week. But I think the application for us today as believers is to feel this eternal hope. I know that's sometimes not something that's easy to put our finger on, but I want you to feel what it looks like to, to have our worship now shaped by our hope for the future. Paul said in verse 58, My dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I want you to walk out of here feeling like your life is not useless. I want you to walk out of here feeling like what you're doing is immovable because you presume on the faithfulness of God. I want you to walk out of here worshiping God because of what He's done and what He's taking us toward in eternity. Nothing we ever do in this life is useless because it's moving us to that future hope that we have so what will eternity be like for us? Well, I'm going to go over two things. The first one is this. We saw a glimpse of it already in Psalm 150 when Jacob preached a few weeks ago. All the nations will worship God forever. We've seen it in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission where people from all nations will come into the kingdom of God with us. We'll, we've seen it in Isaiah 2 when we preached on that. When all nations will come to worship at the mountain of the Lord, you can write this down, God is gathering every type of person to worship him forever. First of all, that's what it's gonna feel like. Whenever you get around people from every tribe, every language, every nation, and they're all worshiping God with you, that's what, it, that's what it's gonna feel like. That's why, one reason why we value diversity here in our church. Not just ethnic diversity, but also age diversity, life stage diversity, income diversity, career diversity, occupation, all that kind of stuff. Diversity in every single way, because Jesus has transformed is transforming and will completely transform everyone and anyone who humbles themselves under his lordship in this life now. Anyone. Doesn't matter where they come from. As a matter of fact, he says that he will pull people from every tribe and every nation and every language to worship him forever. So people from every quadrant of Roanoke, northwest, southwest, northeast, southeast, people from every city across this nation, people from every state, people from every continent, except for Antarctica where nobody lives, right? All of those people worshiping God in renewed bodies on a renewed earth, no pain, no suffering. Listen, no death because it's been swallowed up. No more animosity between ethnicities. No more animosity between political parties. No more animosity between family members. No more suffering, no more fear at the hands of God's creation and nature. I mean, think about how we fight with others now. That'll be gone. Think about how nature is constantly against us, trying to kill us every turn, right? No more. Think of the tragedies that we experience, even in our nation or maybe in your own personal life. Think of the irritations that you've experienced. Think of the sadness that we experience, all done away with because we will live then the way that Jesus lives now, completely transformed in a resurrected body, in the real presence of God forever. C.S. Lewis, in his little-known book, The Great Divorce, describes this heavenly existence in such a powerful way. Highly recommend you read that if you haven't read it. I know it sounds like it's about you know marriage and divorce, but it's not, okay? <laughs> it's about heaven and the reality of what we'll experience. Now, he could be completely off-base as to what it will actually be like, but what he's doing is like the symbolism of the Bible where it helps us feel what it's going to be like. Because he says that everything is going to be more real and more solid and more colorful and more beautiful than anything that we can experience right now. And so he describes it as going further and further into the mountains, climbing higher and higher to be in God's presence, closer and closer and closer, and you can never reach the end. It just keeps on going. It's that idea of being further up and further in. Perfect harmony with God's design, with his decrees, with one another, with God himself. That's why when we read things in the Bible like apocalyptic literature from something like Revelation, all that symbolism helps us feel what it's going to be. It's not, it's not the real thing that it's describing. It's describing something real that we can't understand. But it's trying to get us to feel what it's going to be like. Where we go from our dead and decaying state now to something that's going to be eternal and never dying so I want to take a few minutes to end our time here by reading Revelation chapters four and five. And that's why I said it's a little odd. Okay, uh, we don't do this very often. I, I don't normally read this scripture like this, especially apocalyptic scripture, but we're going to do it today. Okay, because I want you to feel this. I want to give you a glimpse of what the Apostle John gives us in his heavenly vision, because it's you know a lot going on here. I'm, I'm not going to put it up on the screen. It's a lot to read. So I'm not going to put it up here. You can follow along in your own version if you want to. I'm going to be reading from the NLT. But really, what I would rather encourage you to do, go look it up later. But I would encourage you right now to just listen to it. Listen to the language. Listen to the hope. Feel what the Apostle John is writing about here. I think it's really important for us to just meditate on it and dwell it. And just before we get into it, um, this is a vision. So there's some weird symbolism here, okay? It's not the real thing, but it's describing the real thing in a symbolic way. And so one of the things that's symbolic is the 24 elders that are worshiping at God's throne. You'll see them come up, 24 elders. That, that's representative of the church. Most scholars that, that you'll read on this will say that. And so if you, when we see 24 elders, think us. Think those who are worshipers. Think those who are believers. Those who are members of the church, part of the church. And I think maybe even I would encourage you to close your eyes if you feel kind of, I don't want it to be too weird for you. If it's weird, don't close your eyes. But maybe even close your eyes and just hear the symbolism and try to feel the glory and the hope that we have in store for us, that God has been working out for us since the beginning of human history. Let me read this, Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. John writes, Then as I looked, remember he's in this vision, this heavenly vision, He says, I saw a door standing open in heaven. and The same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. You can imagine how scary this might have been. The voice said, come up here and I'll show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like Jasper and Carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. And they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. And this is the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. The waters of chaos calmed for all eternity. And in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. These are all the same beings from Daniel. You know, if you've you've ever read Daniel's vision on this, I'd like to see you stick that on top of a Christmas tree, right? (laughs) Pretty crazy looking. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out, day after day and night after night. They kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living beings gave glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the ancient of days, some translations will say, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. And then I saw a scroll. This is John talking. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They had golden, but so there's. I don't know about the harp, right? There might be a harp held golden bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of God's people see this is all symbolism worship, prayer they sang a new song with these words you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed the people of God from every tribe and every language and people and nation and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. That is eternity for us. Listen, if that doesn't excite you and that doesn't touch your heart, then you're not a believer here today. You You don't follow Jesus. But if you see him as your Lord and you want to fall down and worship him, then this just gets you amped up in a way that nothing else can. This is what our lives should look like now because it's going to lead us into eternity. If we're not worshiping Jesus in this way, now, then what makes us think that we're going to want to do it for all eternity forever? But this gives us a glimpse of what it can feel like. All the symbolism I know, it's got weird imagery and all that kind of stuff that's kind of hard to understand, and that's okay. But what it does is it shows us how powerful God is and what the Lamb who was slain did for us. So our worship now, shaped by this hope that we can have for the future, now we sing differently. Now we work and rest differently. Now we do everything that we do. Give. Live. Everything that we do, we do different, differently in light of this hope. And I'll end with this, because Paul says this elsewhere in his letter to the Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain, because in life we live to worship Jesus now with all of ourselves living sacrifices, but in death, it may look like death had a final say over us, but it doesn't. Jesus has had the final say. He, t- he is the one that won the victory for us because we wait for that resurrection hope, but we transform to be with him forever. Our worship now shaped by our hope for the future. Let's end our year thinking about that and meditating on that truth. Let me pray, God. You- Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.